understanding of, of faith and grace that I hold uh, to this day as a Christian, I really learned it in Shin Buddhism. Uh, and Shin Buddhism, I think, um, struck right to the heart of grace and faith and the relationship that, that faith has um, in our spiritual life. Thanks for coming back. Leanne, thank you for coming back. And we have with us Father Brian Revolts. Father Brian, welcome to Changing Faith. Thank you. He is the priest in charge at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Auburn, California, which is where Mark and Leanne are located. We are, we're actually really excited to have you on because I understand you have an interesting personal account of a change of faith in your journey also. I do. I have a, I have a sense that Father Josh has been telling tales about me. <laughs> um, that might be where it came from. Yes, yeah, it could okay. Be. Uh, so where does this journey begin? Well, okay, we'll jump right in uh, at the deep end of the pool. <laughs> deep end. Wow, yeah. Uh, so my journey of faith, I was raised a Roman Catholic, uh, very loose Roman Catholic in Carson City, Nevada. And as a teenager, became very interested in spiritual questions and spiritual life and uh, went east started thinking about what it would look like to study Buddhism in Eastern texts. And so I became oh, involved. Oh, I thought you meant like east of the Mississippi. No, 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 <laughs> no. That didn't exist for me. Mythical Japan existed for me as a reality more, more palpable than the East Coast. I mean, I was in Carson City, Nevada. Um, but I became very involved with a Buddhist group that actually is well known out here in California. So you go to Penryn, there's the Buddhist church in Penryn. They're called the Buddhist Churches of America. Hmm. They're a Japanese immigrant group, and they are a faith-based, pure land Buddhist school. Um, so Americans don't realize that the majority of Buddhists, say, in Japan, do not meditate. They um, have faith. And so I actually was in introduced to the language of faith, trust uh, as a, mo a mode of salvation in Buddhism, not in Christianity. Interesting. Um, my Roman Catholic youth group experience was very spotty theologically. And so it was as a Buddhist that I really started thinking about faith and grace, which are words that Japanese Buddhists in America use in that, in that sect. Um, and then I went to college and started to feel like I needed to explore Christianity again because there were questions that Buddhism couldn't answer for me. Uh, and so I went to an Episcopal church. I'd never been in one before. And I came to an early morning service and uh, they were doing the traditional prayer book service. And the changing faith moment for me was when the priest read what's called the comfortable words, which are taken right from scripture. They're a little synopsis of the gospel. Um, and, and it begins, um, come, on, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a true and worthy saying uh, to be received that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And then the last line is, and if any should sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus mm -hmm. Christ, the righteous. And he is the perfect offering for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, all of those lines just kind of cherry picked from the Bible, but it, it really, it struck me in a very powerful way. And I connected the language of faith I had learned in Buddhism 
with the historical fact of Jesus, what he had done, what he was, what he offered. And for that, that for me was a transforming moment. And I became an Episcopalian right there in the pew, a very naive one, very green Christian, but I became one nonetheless, and I've never left. And this um, was in college? This was in college, yeah. Where were you at, uh, where did you go to college? The University of New Hampshire. So you did go east. I did go east eventually, um, <laughs> yes, uh, to be a marine biologist. Oh, wow. And you can see how that worked out, so. Fisher of men. Fisher of men, yes, yes. So the uh, p- period in your life with the faith-based Buddhism, mm-hmm. was that here in the West Coast? Uh, yes, it was in Reno. Carson? Oh, Reno. It was in okay. Reno. There's a, there's a mission temple in Reno that was originally called the Reno Buddhist Church. Um, it's now called the Reno Buddhist Center. You know, they've tried to become more hip, but back then they were the Reno Buddhist Church. Yeah. And, and they're still there? They are still there. Do you still have connection with them or? I do not. I have not, other than I still have a lot of Eastern texts um, on my bookshelf that I had from that period. I haven't kept in touch with that community. Um, The one teacher in that community I was connected with was a scholar, um, Taitetsu Uno, who's written several books. And I knew he, uh, I knew him and I knew his wife, Alice, personally, when I was a college student, Um, but they've since passed away. So that was the end of my connection with um, Shin Buddhism in America. You say that was the end. So there's no um, practices or philosophies that you carry with you today from that experience? I mean, I think what I would say is actually, well, yes, um, it's the understanding of of faith and grace that I hold uh, to this day as a Christian, I really learned it in Shin Buddhism. And so I'm very Anglican in the sense that I take the C.S. Lewis approach, which is that um, if Christ is who he says he is, we should expect to see glimmerings of his gospel all throughout the world. Uh, And Shin Buddhism, I think, um, struck right to the heart of grace and faith and the relationship that, that faith has um, in our spiritual life and to our works and and to our striving. And so, um, although I might sound very um, classically Christian when I preach on on faith and and the role of grace, in fact, I learned that language from Shin Buddhists. So I still carry that practice with them. I think their their insight into that language is is beautiful and I still use it. Uh, I just direct it towards um, Jesus and his um, incarnation as opposed to a kind of mythic understanding of the cosmic Buddha, which is where they directed it towards. After college, did you go straight into a seminary? I did. I was a pipeliner, as they say. Um, I don't know why they let me do that. I probably should have been sent to like a restaurant to work for a year or two, but they sent me right to seminary. And so uh, I went to the Graduate Theological Union here in Berkeley, California. Which I heard recently they're trying to partner with, actually, I think it's, uh, it was uh, President Beebe from Westmont. I think he was talking about Westmont College trying to partner with them to um, forge a, a future, some kind of uh, either seminary or uh, collaboration because there, there really isn't much for Christian colleges in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. There's, there's that seminary. Yeah. Not much beyond that. Uh, have you heard anything about the... I haven't, but it would be wonderful. Um, I guess we're kind of hearing it from the other side, from yeah, the Westmont yeah. side. The thing I love about the GTU is that it was founded with this ecumenical passion 
that has since resided, or it's kind of waned in Christian culture in America, but it was, you know, a place you could go where Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and every other stripe of Christian um, could study together. Uh, in fact, um, the Buddhist churches of America are part of it. They oh, have wow. a seminary there. So um, strangely enough, when I was at seminary, I could have taken classes in my old Buddhist um, church's seminary. I never did. I never had the time, but um, it's a wonderful experience to be in a classroom where the theology is rich and diverse, but passionate. And you start to realize that there are other ways to answer um, the questions that you're answering. And those ways might have their own faithfulness and, and rigor to them, even if you're still convinced yours is really the best answer. <laughs> so um, I hope that happens. That'd be wonderful. That, uh, that communication, that conversation occurring that that's so valuable and one of the things about the changing faith um, story that that has been in this podcast is trying to get away from a, a more closed-minded and avoiding conversation mm. type of practice so yeah we really appreciate that too yeah, I feel like Leanne and I were having that conversation before we turned the recorder on. So. I'm sorry. Right. Yes. I don't know if we'll ever get back to it, we, but we, I love it. We yeah. refer to that as the show before the show. Yeah. And I know. We should have been recording all of that. Yes, we should have. Sorry. Uh, after seminary, what, uh, what kind of experiences did you have that shaped your faith or refined it after that uh, mm. time of formal training? Um, that's an excellent question because... Um, Interestingly, for me, the great game changer was really the Bible. So I had, when I was a teenager, gone to Buddhism in a very kind of devotional and meditative way. And then I became a Christian also in a very devotional way, really connected with the liturgy. Um, but the Episcopal Church I was part of didn't have a strong piety around Scripture. We read Scripture in worship, and the sermons were on Scripture but for example, no one ever said to me, I ought to have a personal Bible and read it. Um, and I wasn't taught much in the way of hermeneutics. How do Christians read scripture? So I went off to seminary and, and what I got kind of plunged into was the historical critical method, um, which is wonderful. And there's a lot to gain there. But what it meant was my Bible was this big hardcover NRSV study Bible that I pulled off my shelf for class and for assignments, you know, and it was like, it was like a dictionary. I mean, I used it to do work and that was the extent of my relationship with it. And I revered scripture as scripture, but it was not anything that really touched me personally in seminary. I, I, I looked up passages to do assignments on. When I went to my first congregation and had to preach, I started to realize that I was woefully unprepared to actually preach scripture as scripture and not as ancient text for historical critical investigation. Um, nothing puts a congregation to sleep faster than discuss, discussion of you know, source criticism. Uh, no, no one's interested in that, and nor should they be if you're not a pastor. Um, so I, uh, after a few years in my curacy, began um, searching for deeper biblical waters. And, and that has been a major shift in my own faith. Um, learning how to re-engage the Bible as a, as Anglicans say, a true and lively word, um, as a revelatory word, as a word with 
layer upon layer of depth, and most importantly, as a word um, that needs to be read theologically and not just historical critically. Um, and that's been a major shift for me. And part of the work I've been doing here in process at St. Luke's is learning how to do that well and faithfully and in a way that my congregation and my co-clergy benefit. So, and I think it's interesting coming from an evangelical background mm -hmm. and then, you know, we're kind of delving into the Anglican world now. A lot of criticism that I've heard of of friends of ours that that made the journey the other way, you know, mm -hmm. grew up in a Lutheran church or an Anglican church and then made their the the move to a more evangelical church. Um, said that growing up in in these more traditional church cultures, they never really heard anything personal about the gospel mm -hmm. or, you know, the, the encouragement to read the Bible on your own or to really have that kind of a relationship with God, that it was all just done in the church and there was nothing, nothing personal about it at all. Mm -hmm. And how do you see that or how do you try to work that in um, with your congregation? Mm. Yeah, as I said um, in the show before the show, <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I have to say to myself every morning as a priest um, in the Episcopal Church, and I think this is true of any pastor, you have to look at your denomination or your church body um, in all of its beauty and all of its warts, and you have to kind of say, these are my monkeys and this is my circus. Um, mainline churches uh, do not have a great track record, in my opinion, inspiring um, a biblical imagination or a biblical passion. Um, I certainly, in my upbringing, um, first very in a very loose Roman Catholic upbringing, nobody ever quoted scripture or really made any um, suggestion that anyone other than the professional clergy should be reading it. And in, in, in my Episcopal seminary, the Bible was really treated as you know, a subject, but mm -hmm. not as a way in which God graciously gives himself to us. And I think that's where evangelical culture has something to teach mainline Christian culture. It's not just um, a historical document. It is a living well where you find living water um, and you meet Christ in the preaching and teaching and singing of the word, not just mm -hmm. in the sacramental life of the church. Um, and Episcopalians lean heavily for good reason on the Eucharist as we should, right. but I, I, I try to counterbalance that with, but don't forget that there's this whole service of the word before the table and Christ is present there too. Differently present, but just as truly present. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we need to encounter Christ in scripture um, and especially scripture read in community, uh, which I think, you know, the, the, the tradition of evangelical churches having Bible studies together and making that a major fellowship piece I think is wonderful. And if that's done well, it can be transformative for people. Mm -hmm. I feel guilty when you say that because of the, the way I've looked at people using the Bible in that setting um, and making a lot of assumptions about how to mm -hmm. use it, you know, the more biblicist type background. Like, I think Leanne was earlier talking about that with the experience of somebody who um, just had to make the Bible work a certain way mm. that it doesn't. I don't know. I guess I'll just keep feeling guilty. Yeah. Well, but I mean, that's, and that's the darker side is that where, where um, mainline churches are, can be strong in certain areas 
and weak in some areas. Certainly American evangelicalism has its weak areas and, and hermeneutics, especially um, on the popular level, have been a weakness um, because American evangelicalism tends to not have a strong sense of history. And so as Leanne and I were talking about, people aren't aware of the possibilities. Um, so for me, one of my great heroes is Origin of Alexandria, right? First great biblical exegete and teacher. Um, he's always being smeared because people say, oh, well, he believed in allegorical interpretation. Um, and that's true. He did. So did St. Paul. So did most Christians for most of the church's history. Right. They fully believed that allegory could be usefully employed in the reading of scripture. Um, and Paul, you know, will go so far as to suggest that there may be some Old Testament stories that were written as allegories. You know, not just that you can read them allegorically, but St. Paul seems to suggest that there, he's open to the possibility that maybe some of them were written allegorically all the way down. Um, Do you have an example of that? Um, I mean, oh, I think oh, it's in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians. Yeah, okay. I think it's in Galatians where he, um, he opens up the possibility not only that that scripture, certain scriptures are written as allegory, but he even goes so far as to suggest that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the law or the covenant is actually mediated to us by angels, right? Not God directly to us, hmm. but through these angelic intermediaries, which a first century person would think in those terms. And he uses that to flex open. So therefore, you know, the angels may have uh, mediated some things to us, you know, a little incompetently. And that gives us a certain freedom. Um, I don't want to make too much of that in terms of hermeneutics, but it just oh, right there you see, wait, the early Christian world was a lot wilder and more colorful than we expect. Um, and it wasn't crazed. I mean, they were, there were rules for allegorical reading, but most of the early church fathers read scripture um, literally, but also allegorically and spiritually and morally and um, for me, just letting people know that those possibilities are there frees them up to think in different ways about scripture. Mm. You know, so maybe those two, Leanne told a story of the two Marys, that, that they're different Marys doing the same action. Um, there are lots of ways to read that that don't involve um, mental gymnastics about how there were two different moments where historically two different Marys did the same thing and the Bible is recording it, you know, with, pure, with perfect accuracy, that first this Mary did it, then later this Mary did it. Um, there are other ways that might be richer and it might give you less of a headache. Um, so I think that's the hope of looking at how the early church read scripture for me. Absolutely. Good, yeah. So don't feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just when you're in, the, in that setting and somebody's struggling with that, it's painful to watch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as I think Leanne expressed. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the main line, so in the main line counter to that is I have been in Bible studies where rather than find someone piously struggling with how do I make the text reconcile itself in this modern inerrantist way, which is painful because it doesn't work. Um, I think I can say that with some objectivity. Um, the main line side, the dark side is when you see people dismissing the struggle, refusing to struggle, because it's just an ancient text. And if it doesn't work for me, then it doesn't work, and I just move on. Um, for me, that's equally painful. 
Um, and as an Anglican, I want to see us in the middle. I want people taking the scripture as a true word from God, but also seeing a lot of openness and flexibility and possibility in what God might be doing with that word. Um, so, um, yeah, there, that'll, that'll give you a counter that it's yeah. not all, it's not all sunshine and daisies in, in the mainline churches. Sometimes you get an almost anti-scriptural piety because people have been burned and, right. and they're keeping scripture now at arm's length. They're worried about it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I, I'm probably still at that stage myself now. Um, you mentioned about reading the Bible. I think this may have been before we started recording <laughs> about, uh, the Catholics being hesitant to let people read the Bible in their mm -hmm. own language because then they'll actually read it and they'll see, <laughs> um, wow, it's not what we're, we assume that it is as far as being, uh, something you can read literally every little part of it. And it's mm -hmm. all part of one cohesive, uh, connected and consistent writing. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that's part of the power of a, what I call a biblical imagination is that um, sometimes the text surprises you and forces you to think again. Um, and you know that I, I stole some of that um, thinking I was doing on Paul and angels and Galatians um, from David Bentley Hart, who's a theologian I read quite a bit. And he was the first person that made me aware of just how much of Paul's um, writings are actually concerned with things that we never think about. They're concerned with angelic powers and angelic intermediaries and how the gospel uh, connects with that. It's, he's concerned about moral striving and an appropriate moral striving. He doesn't have an antinomian theory of grace. You know, he's, he's worried about works of the law, ceremonial works, but he also thinks um, there are all sorts of moral works that will be judged by, you know? Um, and those are things that as an American Christian, even trained in seminary, I was just used to reading over. I didn't notice them in the text because I was trained not to notice them. And then I read this other theologian and realize, oh, there are parts of the Bible that I'm reading. It's right in front of me and I'm not seeing what's there. And now the text is surprising me again. Um, so I think biblical study if it's done open-heartedly, can do that to anyone in any stage of faith. You can suddenly realize, oh, wait, there's all sorts of stuff about money here that really pushes on what I think the good life is about. But you might not see it if you're not in conversation with somebody else who's noticed it. I've, I've enjoyed, um, I feel like through the last couple of years, it's not just my, it's not so much my relationship with God that has really changed, but my relationship with the Bible mm -hmm. has changed so much because there before there was so much emphasis on the Bible and actually what it says. And that's the only place that you can really go to understand mm -hmm. this, this life of faith. And um, it's just been eye opening and encouraging to see so many different ways of, of understanding the Bible. And, and it's given so much more freedom too, I think, and just exploring my faith. Mm -hmm. I'll say a bit more about my changing relationship with scripture. It's not just intellectually a change that this is a living word and a living relationship. For me, it's actually been um, very physical in the sense that I started to get interested not just in the Bible conceptually, not just the Bible historically, but like physically, how is a Bible put together? Hmm. So I went way down this rabbit hole and like watching YouTube videos of people who do Bible rebinding. Um, my personal Bible, 
I had rebound. It was an old hardcover study Bible, you know, with like a teal cover that you get in a college bookstore. And I was like, this will never do. Um, so I had it rebound in leather um, and uh, got interested also in the physical layout of Bible texts, how they've changed, how, for example, um, I just assume that a Bible has to have, you know, chapter headings and verse numbers and all these things that are actually later additions to the text. Um, and now we're living at this wonderful time where in America, especially, there are all sorts of new ways of reading the Bible, you know, readers editions of the Bible mm -hmm. and um, all sorts of different specialized study editions and also um, Bibles that are laid out in formats that are intended to make them look more like a novel, for example, no chapter, no verse, right. no heading. Um, David Bentley Hart, the man I mentioned, actually did a translation of the Bible just like that. It's a wonderful translation with none of the critical apparatus um, in it. It just, it reads like um, a novel um, with, um, you know, he kept the verse numbers in so you could check his translation with your own favorite one. But that's been really interesting for me. And so now every morning, I start the morning with my physical Bible, reading it, but also writing and taking notes in it, which was something that I never would have done in seminary, because I would have thought that it would be ruining the book, right? You know, now, you know, I, I colored pencils and, you know, um, little Pigma Micron pens I mean, my Bible looks very marked up in, and I love it. Um, and so I feel like that part of more traditional evangelical culture, the well-used Bible with the highlighting system. Um, I just gave a retreat for Episcopal women. And I, before the retreat, I said, go to a bookstore and buy yourself a wide margin or a journaling Bible. Buy yourself a Bible you don't mind using um, and bring it to the retreat. And we just practiced what it's like to actually physically engage the text. You know, Write your notes in there, highlight things that mean something to you. Um, it was really fun to see kind of staid mainline Christians getting really um, joyful and enjoying the Bible as, as something that can be more um, personal and relational um, and not just a kind of historical artifact. So that's been a fun change for me. So I feel like we've probably gone the opposite direction. Like I'm, I'm leaning into the evangelical world being like, ooh, ooh I, I love that. I love that. I love that. You're leaning into more of the mainline world saying, oh, but I like some of this. I like some of mm -hmm. this. And that's good. Um, What's that's your exposure great. to that sort of evangelical world uh, practice? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, Carson City, Nevada, that is, that is the lay of the land. And I have friends who are um, evangelical pastors um, and I certainly have been to my share of those churches. I mean, the thing is the, the word evangelical is such an umbrella word. I mean, there is no definition of it. And for example, you know, some people would argue that you shouldn't include fundamentalists under the evangelical. They, they should be separate, but most people consider them all to be of a piece. And so, um, my sense is the Christian community is quite diverse and certainly I've been to some churches that would identify as evangelical that made my skin crawl, you know, to be frank. I've been to some mainline churches that made my skin crawl. And I've been to some evangelical churches that I thought were warm and intellectual. And I mean, one of the best sermons I ever heard in Berkeley was by a really traditional Calvinist pastor. I mean, he was a, you know, neo-reformed neo guy, but man, he was thoughtful. I mean, it was just such, I mean, it was, it was a level of intellectual thinking and passion that just put the local Episcopal church to shame, which was more, you know, just kind of 
you know, Berkeley moderate, you know, and how they preached. And so, but of course I would have disagreed with him on almost every facet of his theology, but I couldn't fault his intellectual depth or his sincerity. So um, I try to cultivate a pretty generous heart um, with other Christians, which is why, you know, Father Josh and I hang out and get coffee and keep in touch because although we're in officially separate bodies, I really see us as, you know, doing God's work in our own ways, uh, with our own circus, uh, and our own monkeys. Um, and in the end, um, my hope is on that last great day, we all get woven together somehow and realize we kind of needed each other all along. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my, my theology is that we actually all need each other. Like, you know, I need Nazarene and Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox people to um, point out to me my own blind spots. And I think they need me to point out what Anglicans can point out. I so. certainly do also appreciate uh, having that connection to other people from mm-hmm. different churches and what they can bring to me uh, by keeping relationship with them. And, and that's something that we do quite regularly as well. Look at what we're doing here yeah. today. That's the real, that's why I got <laughs> excited about your blog. Um, yeah. It's such a great idea to, um, and to make people be personal and honest about the way that their faith actually has changed, right? So that people can't pretend that they've always just had this, this perfect mm-hmm. faith but we all go through seasons and, and some of those seasons can be really joyful and some of them can be really hard for people. And um, so I think this, this, I hope this is really a blessing to people who listen to it and yes. are walking the journey yes. that you're walking. We're yeah. all walking it, whether we admit yeah. it or not. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people that it's a lot harder on them than it has been for us. We, we've mm-hmm. been able to trust God to guide us through mm-hmm. whatever it is and to lead us in all truth, which is kind of what we feel like is the whole thing. Mm-hmm. What, what this is all about. So it's nice to be able to share it with others that, mm. that can still have fellowship, even though they may not have had the same exact experience or, or not yet, maybe. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pastorally, it does strike me. Something that really um, moves me is that when you meet people who are really reactive around a certain doctrine or a certain way of reading scripture, um, oftentimes what I've discovered in conversation is that underneath that is a fear that if they lose this doctrine or they lose this way of relating to the Bible, they will lose God. Right. Um, and so I'm always sensitive to that because um, that's really real for people. I mean, if you've been taught that there's only one re- way to read the Bible, and if it doesn't work that way, then it doesn't work. That can be really terrifying if you don't have that trust that God will still be there on the other end, even if you're relationship to your faith changes Mm -hmm. that that person you described that's the person we most want to be or at least i most want to be there for and provide Mm -hmm. something for the person that because they've been taught a a philosophy that it's all gone if you Mm -hmm. take this one little foundational stone it all collapses right and i've i've actually attended services where that was said Mm -hmm. uh specifically it was the uh Creation Research Institute when they were here when I was in high school. Oof, okay. And I attended it and they said, yeah, if you, if you allow evolution to be the way that life developed on this planet, then you take out all of the essential doctrines that are presented in Genesis 1, mm. that the, all the rest of the Christian faith is based on, it's all gone. Right. And so to come from something like that, you think that your faith is in the balance if you look right. at science and say, wow, that makes sense. And I have to turn my brain off to keep the faith that I was taught. Otherwise I lose it all. Right. 
Yeah, that's something I really want to be there for those people who have been taught that to show them, no, that's not the only way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a powerful mission because that is really um, at the heart of so much struggle in our own culture around faith is that I've often said to the congregation here, um, I've yet to meet someone who didn't believe in the God that I believe in. I meet people who say they don't believe in God. And when I ask them to explain, tell me about God, what, what, what conception of God are you rejecting? They paint for me a picture that I don't recognize. Um, and that most of the church, especially the early church and in the medieval church, would not have recognized. I mean, they really have been given a very narrow and very particular view from a pastor or a denomination. And then, we're, and then we're told, and this is it, right? Either God is, you know, this way or, or God is not. And so they eventually get that point where they say, well, then there is no God, right? I'm giving up on the whole thing. Um, and that's a tragedy. Um, because again, the Christian faith is so rich, so diverse. Um, I know I, I've completely overused this image, but so many monkeys, so many circuses, <laughs> like it's so great. I love being a Christian and I love um, churches and denominations, even for all the pain that can be there. I think there's more joy and there's more possibility. So um, I think this is exciting what you guys are doing. Thank you. So how do you reconcile all of the different monkeys with like Jesus prayer about unity in the church and, you know, praying that we will all be one. Yep. And, and I love the, the, the coming together of the different traditions. And it seems like that's happening more in America. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I don't think that that has been as much of an issue in other parts of the world. Um, but, but there, it is so diverse. And I think people looking on the outside, looking in at the Christian church, just see us as so scattered um, so how does that play in right. with, with Jesus' desire? Um, well, I reject the idea of unity as uniformity mm -hmm. um, or unity as needing to be a kind of um, absolute, visible, institutional unity, which is often how I hear my friends who are part of denominations that really push that visible unity. That's how they define it. They say, well, okay. unity is that you have to be all visibly signed on to the same document in the same, you know, under the same pension plan, et cetera. Um, I, I take heart in the fact that the early church never had that unity. I mean, hmm. from, the, from the mission of Paul to the Gentiles, right? I mean, there was real disagreement there and real diversity. Um, in the Christian canon itself, there's a great deal of diversity. I mean, you look at Paul and Galatians and how, how much he'll push on Jewish understandings of the law. Then you look at the book of Revelation, where the author of Revelation seems to pretty much have a pretty standard Jewish Christian view and, and seems to actually critique Pauline images. Hmm. You know, he, he seems to have a much more um, conservative opinion. And right up in, in our 27 book New Testament, those letters are all placed side by side right. with this deeper understanding that Christ can enfold all of that and work through um, diversities in a way that I think can be Trinitarian, right? That, that we, in the end, Christians worship a God who is one and three and not three and one and not one, but three. And there's this wonderful sense in which um, in the space between father and son and spirit, uh, there's an infinite possibility for life to manifest, for creatures to live entirely unique lives that are nonetheless brought into some kind of deeper harmony. Um, and that's obviously an eschatological hope, right? In the end of time, we will see perfect diversity and perfect unity when God becomes all in all, as Paul says, the Trinitarian God, 
becomes all in all, um, where you, Leanne, and you, Mark, are not made into copies of a kind of generic God person, but you are truly you, and actually mm -hmm. more truly you than you ever were in this life, and yet still you. Um, so that's my vision of, of Christian um, diversity and unity. Um, I think there's a providential ordering in the way the Christian church has uh, flourished and fought and <laughs> schismed and reunited. Uh, and I know that will drive certain people crazy, but I just don't find it compelling to tell a story in which one group got it right and everyone else got it wrong and God is just on the side of the in-group and busily wagging his finger at all the out-group, you know? Right. Um, so again, I, I'm radically generous towards other denominations and, you know, I listen to Calvinist podcasts and I listen to Arminian podcasts and I just kind of, you know, love it. And even though those two groups would, you know, skewer me if they knew I was going, back, going and back and forth. Going back and forth. That's great. I think that's an excellent way to come to the conclusion of perfect our time with Father Rebels. Brian. <laughs> okay. And would, if, if people are really interested, uh, if that really sparks something, what you were saying, uh, and they want to reach you, how would you want them to get a hold of you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you can just go to our website, stlukesauburn.org, and um, my email is there. I'm available. Email is a great way to get in touch with me. I love to answer emails. Um, and you don't have to promise me you'll come to my church. You can just shoot me a theological email and I'll happily shoot one back. Okay, so, great. Thank and all of so his much. sermons are also online. My sermons, I don't know if you want Which, to tell people that. Yeah. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy listening to them. Well, thank you. I but do. yes, our, my sermons are also, all the sermons of all the clergy at St. Luke's are online. And that's the one technological thing that I think we do well. And Mark affirmed it. He said, you're really good at uploading yes. sermons. Yes. Yeah, to keep it as simple as possible so it goes from being preached to being online and available yeah you know it, it doesn't matter how high tech and complicated you have the system if people aren't receiving the word at the end right yeah so yeah, that's it, the yeah, one thing we don't works. monkey around with is we get the sermons right online no monkeys involved in that yeah. part father brian thank you so much for thank joining you us. this has been great it's all fun